Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. We have been practicing this uh, for a few months now, where we're standing to receive God's word as a way to honor that. Uh, so after he finishes, I will say that he will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will respond by saying, thanks be to God. A reading from Mark chapter 13. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know uh, when, that will, when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants, his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, near the end of August, I ordered something I had been researching from eBay for a long time. The only issue was that it was coming from Japan. But thankfully, uh, like we all know today, you get dates and you get tracking numbers so you know exactly when your stuff is going to arrive. And it said at the latest, this will arrive September 9th. And so, of course, I get home every day and I'm looking, maybe it came early. Never comes early. And September 9th rolls around and it doesn't show up. And so I contact the seller. I say, hey, it hasn't shown up. And he sends me back the tracking slip. I'm like, okay. And now the new tracking says September 15th. So I got to wait another week. All week I'm waiting. I'm looking. I'm anticipating. It still doesn't show up. So I contact eBay. They contact the seller. And it turns out it was all a big scam. I don't know why you would do that on eBay because you don't get any money. I got all my money back. But that's what this person decided to do. And I kept waiting, and I kept waiting with anticipation, but my package never came. And I'm sharing that simply because today we continue our series working our way through the gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus, and we are looking at part two of chapter 13 of Mark's gospel where Jesus is speaking about the end times and his return. Last week, if you were here, Jeff did a great job teaching us about Jesus' warnings and the difficulties and the trials that his people will face before these days. And today, if you're following, Jesus will teach 
that though there will be trials and waiting, Jesus will return. Unlike that package from eBay, there is a guaranteed time when Jesus will come back. One day, the king will return and set things right. Now, if you're here and you think I stole the title of this message from the Lord of the Rings, you would be 100% correct. And if you think I'm a nerd because I did that, you are also 100% correct. But the king will return. That is the story we're looking at today. And thankfully, this is one of those topics where there's absolutely no controversy within the church with a capital C. So this should be an easy day for us. Actually, you probably know there's lots of debate about passages like this. Many people have used these passages to try to figure out the specific date when Jesus will return. Other people teach that Jesus isn't actually talking about literally coming back again, so we shouldn't read it that way. Both of those are wrong. And so what I just want to do is look at this particular passage, Mark 13, and what Jesus says about his return. Now, I'm going to be upfront with you. The first part of today is going to be much more teaching. We're going to go verse by verse. If you want to take extra notes on the back, you're welcome to do that. And then we'll come to, so what, right? What does it mean that Jesus will return for us here and now today? So if you haven't already, I invite you to take your Bible, turn it to Mark 13. We're just picking up where we left off last week in verse 24. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the seat underneath you there. You can find this on page 826 of those black Bibles. Would love for you to follow along. If you need a Bible, please take that home with you today as our gift. So let's pick it up in verse 24 where Jesus says, but in those days following that distress, Now, this is why we kind of split this passage in two. You can clearly see there's some sort of transition happening here in these verses, following that distress. That included what we talked about last week, the abomination that causes desolation. It included the prediction that the temple in Jerusalem would fall. And Jesus says, okay, after that, there's some more things that are going to happen in those days. Now, When you see that in the Bible, it should give us a clue that Jesus is now talking about what Scripture calls the day of the Lord. Or if you're following, those days refers to the day of the Lord. If you've ever read the Bible in a year, you've probably seen this mentioned dozens if not more times. First century Jewish people, like Jesus, like Paul, divided human history into two ages. There's this age and there's the age to come. This age that we live in right now resulted from the fall. It is full of poverty and wars we see even today. Injustice and hurt and disease. This is the world we live in after the fall. But there's a promise of another age that is coming, right? An age of healing and renewal at the feet of God who will return and make things new. Now, here's the key for us today in this passage. There's this transition point between these two ages in this event that is called Yom Yahweh or the day of the Lord. In the Bible, it is also referred to as that day or the day of Christ, or those days, like we see here in our passage, or even sometimes it's just called the day. And we read about it everywhere, and here's what we need to know about this transition, this day of the Lord, the return of the king. If you're following on your notes, it is a day of judgment and defeat of God's enemies. That day, those days, we read about it 
everywhere, but let's look at Isaiah 13 because that's where Jesus is about to take us. It starts this way in Isaiah 13, verse 9. Isaiah says through the Holy Spirit, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Jesus then quotes from verses 10 and 11. We have it here in 24 and 25 of Mark 13. He says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then Isaiah finishes. I just think it's important to put a little bookmark around this. He says, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Do you see what this day is going to be? It's going to be day of judgment over evil and sin. God will eradicate those things from human history, from the cosmos, from the world once and for all. He will come to judge the earth. But that's not all that that day will bring, the day of the Lord. If you're following, in addition to judgment, it is also a day of salvation and victory for all of God's people. It's a day of salvation and victory for all God's people. So listen, this is what I believe Jesus is now talking about, starting in verse 24, the day of the Lord. The day the king returns to judge evil and then to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. This is further backed up by verse 26, which I have on your notes there. Would you read that out loud with me? It says, at that time, people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The son of man. As we've been going through Mark for two years now, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. This is how he refers to himself. And again, we're not memorizers of the Bible. We're not so soaked into it. But if we were living in this day, if as a Jewish person, we would know immediately what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We've looked at these verses several times throughout this series, but they're worth looking at one more time just so we can set the context here. Here's what Daniel writes. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there was before me one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is that son of man. And he will return in all authority and glory. We've seen in his public ministry, he has kept his identity secret, right? Even telling others, don't tell them who I am. In his first coming, he came to be a servant, humbly, to offer his life as a ransom for many. But when he comes again, he will come with great glory and great power. And what will happen when he comes? Look at verse 27. And he will send his angels and gather his elect. Now we get into some controversy here, right? Elect. Who are the elect that he will gather? In my opinion, it's simply those who have been faithful to following the way of Jesus during this age of trial and tribulation. Those who have stood firm. It can also refer to those in Israel who will finally recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But he will come and he'll send the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So again, if you're on your notes, what does this day look like? 
On that day, Jesus will gather his people to be with him in his kingdom. That's going to be pretty cool. Revelation chapter 7, 9, and 10 describes it like this. After this, I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He will gather all people from all nations, and we will stand before him as king. Jesus is coming again to gather his people, both the living and the dead. The Son of Man will bring the earth, bring to earth the kingdom that he received from the Father, the ancient of days of Daniel chapter 7. The old will pass, the old age will pass. With all of its sin and suffering, the new age will come. And so listen, let's just sum this up. The day of the Lord, yes, it's going to be a heavy, ominous, disturbing day. There's just no way around it. It is going to be a day of judgment where God will finally judge evil and evildoers. It's the day when he will separate sheep from goats. And he will invite those who follow him into his kingdom. But on the other hand, I just got to say for followers of Jesus, this is a day that hopefully you and I look forward to. Because it's going to come and bring the release of all good things, of all new things, of everything that is good and true and beautiful. But now, in the following verses, we come to some of where the difference of opinion starts about that day. To put this as simply as I can, there are two views on what follows here. The first view is simply that Jesus is now going to go back and forth to talk about the destruction of the temple and those days and those times. Or the other view is he's only still talking about the day of the Lord and the end times. So let's unpack them. Look at verses 28 through 29. It says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. The confusion comes with the words, these things. Which things are you talking about now, Jesus? Are, are you talking about the things you talked about in verses 1 through 23? the abomination of desolation, the destruction of the temple, or are you talking about the end of times and the trials that the future generations, perhaps our generation, will experience before the day of the Lord? Part of the confusion comes because Jesus uses this analogy of a fig tree. If you were here earlier, Mark, we saw that oftentimes in Scripture, the fig tree is used as an analogy for the people of Israel. And so some argue when Jesus is using this picture again of the fig tree, he's talking about Israel. And the day, the fruits, the, the signs of the times are going to be when they start turning back to Jesus as Messiah. Others argue in this case, Jesus is just using a fig tree because they had a lot of fig trees. And what he's talking about here is just as the leaves start to preview the coming of summer, so the signs that Jesus described in verses 5 through 23 are going to, you're going to recognize the destruction of Jerusalem is close. The temple will be destroyed. Now, why is there a difference of opinion here? It's the next verse, which causes much confusion. Verse 30, he says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. What does that mean? Which generation? 
Once again, it could mean one of two things. It could actually mean three things. Number, the first thing is that Jesus was just wrong. He thought it was all going to happen. I don't think that's the case here. I think there's two better options here. First of all, it could simply mean, once again, that this generation, the people he's talking to right now, his disciples, his apostles living in this time, will live to see the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. Right? Hey, you're going to live not long enough to see the warnings in the first part of this. You're going to see that come to fulfillment. And we know in the Bible that a generation is about 40 years And sure enough, in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. Some of the apostles would have still been alive. Some of the people listening to Jesus would have been witnesses to this. They would have fled to the hills. They would have left the city as it was being destroyed. The other option is to see these days, or this generation, excuse me, as the generation that is going to experience the day of the Lord. Now, I know that's a little confusing, So let me give you an example of how you could use that. Here it is. If I said to you, if the coast keeps rising in California, which it currently is, it will eventually cause many homes to be lost because of landslides, which it will. And then you would say, this generation, the generation living during the landslides, will have some serious problems to deal with. Does this make sense? It's either talking about the people living at the time of Jesus, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, or it's talking about the people who will be living during the last days and the return of Christ. I'm doing my best. It's probably as clear as mud right now, but thankfully, I'm just going to give you the answer, the right answer. I don't 100% know. Which interpretation is right? I I have talked to people who are 100% sure that they know. Uh, But I would just say, I have my opinion. It's a strong opinion based on my own study of the end times and and these words from Jesus. But here's the thing. I don't know how much that matters compared to the one thing we can all agree on, which is that's not really the main point of this passage. Now, it doesn't mean it's not important to look into these things. But what's important is to understand whether he's talking to the first century disciples or to the future disciples, perhaps us, for when Jesus returns, he has a bigger point in mind behind all of that whenever these things happen. What is it? Well, we're getting there. Can you be patient for a little bit? But let's get there by looking at verse 31. It says, heaven and earth, Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. This is one of the strongest statements Jesus makes in Mark's gospel about who he is, right? The temple will fall to ruin. History will come to an end. This present age, this present heaven and earth will give way to a new heaven and a new earth. But despite all that's happening, my words will remain forever. And if you're a Jewish person and you're hearing this, you're going, what'd you just say? You see, only God's words are eternal. We read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse eight, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And Jesus looks at them and says, my word endures forever. I am God. And my word will stand throughout history and even beyond the present history. Therefore, if you're following, Jesus unmistakably calls himself the eternal God. And he says his words 
or what we stand by, what we can know as truth. This is why as Protestants, we say something called sola scriptura, by scripture alone, right? That's what we stand on as our anchor, as our foundation, because God's word alone is eternal. No other human tradition is eternal. It is God's word that is eternal. It will not change, even though culture tries to change it. Even though different societies try to make it say something else, God's word stands forever. Jesus' word stands forever. We can know who God is and the way he has called us to live as his followers. God's word is the anchor. Now and whatever generations come and go, his word stands firm. And with that in mind, we now come to what I think is the main point of this text, starting in verse 32. It says, but about that day, okay, for sure we know he's back to talking about the day of the Lord, or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Interesting, Jesus doesn't know when this day is gonna happen. Now, I'm gonna say something. I don't think that's true anymore. I think once Jesus ascended into heaven, he retook his glorified body next to the Father. Jesus is God. He now knows that day. But for a time, we know when he came to earth, he set aside some of his godly powers, right? Like omniscience. He didn't know all things at that time. Omnipotence. He wasn't all powerful when he came to be a human being in the incarnation or omnipresence. He couldn't be all places at all times like God can currently be. He took on human flesh. He surrendered those things in order to become a sacrifice for us, the perfect sacrifice, right? This is why we read in Mark's gospel. We've seen it, right? He gets hungry. I mean, if he was really God, he didn't have to. God doesn't eat in heaven, right? He gets tired. He experienced thirst. He was killed. So this statement, in my mind, simply means no human being can know when these things are going to happen. Or if you're following, Jesus clearly states, no one knows when this will happen, when the end times will happen, when the day of the Lord is coming. And if anybody says they do, I would say as much as they're, that's nothing less than blasphemy, really, to say, I know God's mind. I know it so well. I know the exact date when he is going to return. I know the exact time and date when he's going to return. People have actually done that, right? They said, oh, it's going to happen on this day, at this time. Whew. Jesus didn't know it. He now does as God, because only God knows now, let's read verse 33 out loud here. This is what Jesus wants to tell us about all of this. Ready? Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Since we can't know the date of his return, he says, just be ready no matter what. Just be ready. And then he uses this another analogy. He says, it's going to be like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells them, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. I'm leaving. I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And I'm leaving you with some work to do. So stay alert. Stay awake. Keep doing what I've called you to do as my disciples. Verse 35. Therefore, keep watch. 
Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So what's the main idea of this whole discourse? It's simple, but it is not easy to apply in our lives today. If you're following, we may not know when, but we do know what we should be doing. No matter where you fall on when these things are gonna take place. I mean, the war in Israel right now, perhaps it is a sign that the days are coming. Perhaps it's not. No matter where you fall on that, Jesus wants us to focus on how we are living right here and right now until he returns. Can we agree with that? Great, so how does he want us to live? Well, I see four things in this text, and this is how we're going to kind of get ourselves out of this today or how we're going to finish today. The first thing is stay away from anybody who makes specific predictions. Notice the word specific. Again, we're going to notice things in the world that are happening that could point to these days, but nobody knows the exact day when these things will happen. This stuff's kind of fun once you get into it, right? Trying to figure out the end times and all these kind of things that are happening in our world. It's fun to solve mysteries, to try to put the puzzle pieces together. But people have been predicting the return of Christ since 70 AD, right? And every decade since. There's always wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and so on and so forth. And so when people predict specific dates, I think it causes a lot of confusion. It can cause an an attitude like, well, if he's coming here, I don't need to, if he's coming soon, I don't really need to care about what's happening right here and right now. He's coming and somebody said 1986. I can't remember the pastor's name, right? He didn't come. He changed the date. He didn't come. I appreciate the words of Chuck Swindoll here. I have them on the screen for you to follow. Chuck writes, too many want to foolishly point at current, current events and announce this is it. This is the event predicted in the Bible. This is the Antichrist. These are the last days. Stay away from that, he says. Others want to get out their calculators and start counting down to the date of Christ's return. It's hard to imagine a more direct contradiction to Jesus' clear words in Mark 13. But over the course of my ministry, I've seen it dozens of times, sometimes by educated, respected Bible teachers I thought should know better, so stay away. And again, this doesn't mean Christ will not return. It simply means I don't know when it's going to happen. Only God knows the day it's going to happen. This is why Jesus would say to the apostles in Acts 1-7, right? He's about to head up to heaven, and they want to know when. When are you going to come back? When are you going to become return as the king? And he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Here's my translation. Guys, don't worry about that right now. Worry about what I'm going to ask you to do for me. And that's the second application, which is stay alert and faithful at all times. People who are on the alert aren't simply awake and aware, right? If you're alerted to something, you have a sense of urgency. You're you're listening different. You're looking different. You're living in a different kind of way. Someone who is alert is confident, informed, not ignorant. You're not passive, right? Because I don't know when the day will come. You've got to be on the alert. If you have ever had a child, you know exactly what we're talking about right now, right? You get to about nine months, 
You've got that bag packed because you just don't know when exactly the moment is going to come when you have to rush to the hospital. And it's the same thing here. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Could it be getting closer? Of course it could be getting closer. We got to have our bags packed. We've got to always be ready and on alert for that day. If you're following for me, what this means is we should live every day as if it will be our last day. You wake up in the morning, you say, I don't know. It's not, it could be today. It might not be today. But regardless, Jesus says, don't fall asleep. Stay awake, stay alert. In the New Testament, you know what sleep is a metaphor for? Two things, it's either death or spiritual dullness. Going through the motions. I've met people who are like, well, I'm going to live however I want to live, and at the end of my life, I'll repent and turn to Jesus. Like, oh, no. Stay awake. Stay alert. Be ready. Live your life faithfully to the way of Jesus. Live your life faithfully. Paul writes about it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 6. But you, brothers and sisters, you're not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Let us not go through life with spiritual dullness. Let us be sober-minded and faithful in following Jesus and what he calls us to be and to do. Now, I'll just be honest with you, and I bet you most of you in this room feel this, right? This is hard for me to think maybe today's the day. I would say it's probably true for most Americans, most first world Christians. We have got it pretty good. We're comfortable. We've got a good, easy life. I don't know, compared to somebody who's living in Africa right now, followers of Jesus, they can't wait for this day. And we're kind of like, did you postpone it? I want to see my daughter graduate. I want, I want to see, I want to have grandkids, right? We, we live in this sort of like, oh, I don't know how much I need to stay awake to these things. But if we read anything today, the way you live your life today matters for eternity. Our faithfulness today matters. It doesn't mean we've got to walk around in fear. Any of you grow up and see thief in the night? Am I the only one that was scarred by this, right? I had already given my life to Christ, but then I saw that movie and I was like, I've got to do it again and again and again. It's not a day to be feared for followers of Jesus who are walking in his way. It is a day to be excited about, a day to look forward to. And Jesus says, stay awake, live every day. As we say around here, giving yourself fully to me and my mission. Speaking of his mission, I see that as the third application of this text. If you're on your notes, we need to stay on task with the mission he gave us. I love this. Remember Acts 1-7? We just looked at it, right? They're all like, when are you coming, Jesus? He said, don't worry about it. And then the very next verse, Acts 1-8, here's what he says to them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Don't worry about when. Until that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to share me through word and deed to the entire world. 
I want you to tell others that the king is coming again to make all things right and everyone is welcome into his kingdom. For those of us who understand that Jesus will return, we should be the most passionate about his mission, right? Because we know it could happen at any time. And sadly, sometimes I think it's the opposite. I've heard people, not in this church, thank the Lord, say, what does it matter? It's all going to burn in the end anyway. No. No. It matters tremendously more than we can imagine. Eternal life is at stake. People's lives are at stake. Knowing that Jesus will return, if you're falling on your notes, means that we should be the most urgent. Or Jesus' nearing return should make us urgent to wake up others. Indifference towards the lost and hurting people in this world should not be a mark of someone who understands that Jesus is coming again. Can I get an amen on that? It should make us even more passionate. Final thing I just want to say about this, any time end times passages are talked about means the author wants, is writing to a specific church and he wants them, if you're following, to stay hopeful that the king will return and set everything right. Hope. This should be one of the distinguishing marks of followers of Jesus. Along with faith and love, we live every day with a sense of hope. No matter what trials we see, no matter what sufferings we see around us, we always stand on hope. Hope in light of pain, hope in light of suffering, hope in light of trials, hope, yes, even in light of death. Do you have hope? Not fear, but hope. I've been in enough hospice rooms. Hospice is where they take people who are dying to see the difference between somebody who has hope in eternal life and Jesus returning and someone who does not. And it is a stark difference. Christians, we have hope. We have hope. As we've been talking about, I'm sad because the second coming of Christ has been Uh, the source of debate for endless amounts of years among Christians. I've barely scratched the surface of these debates today. And I gotta say again, it's not like those questions aren't worth asking and investigating, but they were never really the primary concern of the biblical authors. Their concern was always writing to a specific audience who needed a word of hope. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 56, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all asleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe themselves with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And now read verse 57 on your notes out loud with me there. Paul writes, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So loved ones, no matter what you face, the victory is yours. No matter what you're suffering through right now, the victory is yours. 
no matter what trials we may face as those days approach, the victory is ours. Even in the face of death, the victory is ours. If you're following, we can know that in Christ, the victory is ours both now and forever. That is the hope that we have in the return of the King. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.